And thanks for being here. I want you have a seat, open up your Bible, tell the person on your right and left, glad you're here. They may not have been sitting next to you when we did that earlier. Daniel chapter three. Is idolatry a pervasive problem in your life? Is idolatry a pervasive problem in your life? I don't know what you think about when you think about the word idolatry. I know what I start thinking about. I start thinking about a little statue that we had in the living room of the house I grew up in. In 1977, my parents went on their honeymoon to vacation, TMI for all of us, I know. And they brought back with them this uh, souvenir. It was a little statue. It was a head. The head was kind of stretched out. And it just sat on our furniture for as long as I could remember. Once I got to college, the internet was starting to become accessible. And I wondered, what is this statue all about? It's just a souvenir from Jamaica. What's this statue all about? And so I went to Netscape Navigator and Alta Vista and Ask Jeeves, and I uh, did a little research. And what I found out was that statue was actually the Jamaican god of fertility, which is definitely something you do not want in your house when you have teenagers. And, and, And... But it wasn't that to the Jones family. It was just a trinket from a vacation in Jamaica. So when I think about idolatry, that's the kind of thing that pops into my mind. Probably that's the kind of thing that pops into your mind. So how do I answer the question? Is idolatry a pervasive problem in my life? I'm likely to say, no, it's not because we never had a family moment around the statue. We never paid any attention to it. If you had stolen it, nobody would have noticed. Uh, So when I think about idolatry in those terms, I I don't think it's a, a problem, but apparently it is. Because when God went to summarize his commandments, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when he went to summarize his original commandments, he started, number one, do not have any other gods before me. Number two, do not make for yourself any graven image. So it would seem to me that in God's mind, if he's putting that at number one and number two of all of his commandments, that maybe it is a pervasive, pervasive problem. I'm just not defining it right. So when we look to the word of God, if we were gonna summarize all that it would say about this topic, here's how I would define the word idolatry. Idolatry is the act of offering to something or someone what I should only offer to God. Idolatry is the act of offering to something or someone what I should only offer to God. And when I start thinking about it in those terms, Maybe it is a pervasive problem. But why does it matter? Why does that word even matter? It's not a word that we use consistently. It matters because as you read the scripture, especially the Old Testament, idolatry was a real struggle for them, a real struggle. And what happened is idolatry opened up a door for all other kinds of weaknesses, offenses, and sin. How many of you did the D.A.R.E. program 
like, yeah, some, some of us do. The D.A.R.E. program taught us about gateway drugs. I don't know if that's still a term that they're using, but everybody who grew up in the 90s and late 80s knows that marijuana is a gateway drug. That's what the police officer told me. And, uh, and they, not one-on-one, of course, uh, <laughs> as far as you know, uh, Marijuana is a gateway drug. If you try marijuana, you take a little vacation to Colorado. Why not? The people are uh, winning Rome. Um, the D.A.R.E. officer said that if you tried marijuana, you're more likely to try heroin. You're more likely to try cocaine. You're more likely to shove other things up your nose. That's what he said. Marijuana is a gateway drug. And when you read the scripture, then specifically in the Old Testament, idolatry was a gateway sin. They would start to worship these gods of their neighbors. Their neighbor's pantheon, they would be tempted by them and it would open up the door for all other kinds of things. So why does this thing that we're talking about today, which if we're just thinking in terms of statues, probably not number one or number two on your list of problems today, why does it matter? Well, it matters because maybe you've had a hard time shaking yourself free from some other sin. You've done that prayer that I've done a million times. God, I promise I will never do that again. If you'll just give me a fresh start, I promise I'll never do that again. And you just can't get free. Well, it may be that that sin, that thing, that weakness, that habit is a symptom of another problem. You've left the door open through this thing, idolatry, which we don't talk about because you're offering something to someone that is not God. It's, it's, It's made you susceptible to all kinds of other things. And so what if that problem with gossip that we all have isn't just a problem with gossip, maybe the root of it is idolatry. Maybe some of you can't shake free from lust and all the images that come from it. What if that's a a symptom of this very Old Testament problem of idolatry? Is idolatry a pervasive problem in your life and in my life? It might be Daniel chapter 3 verse 1 King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps prefects governors advisors treasurers judges magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the statue he had set up. Verse four, a herald loudly proclaimed, people, every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There are four things I would love you to observe in these passages that we're reading together. Observation number one, King Nebuchadnezzar constructed a statue and demanded worship towards it. Now, 
a little review for all of us so we're all on the same page. Israel had been stuck, God's people had been stuck in this cycle of faithfulness, faithlessness, faithfulness, faithlessness. And God had warned and predicted way back through Moses, generations before that, if, if they didn't break free from that cycle, if they ever got stuck in it like a, in a cul-de-sac, that a foreign power would come and God would use that foreign power as a means of discipline. Well, Israel never broke free from that cycle. And so finally, God uses the nation, the empire of Babylon. And the Babylonians come as they're sweeping through the ancient Near East. They come to Israel next and they just take it over. They wipe it out. And, and part of the wipeout is to handpick a few of the best, the most beautiful, the youngest, the brightest of Israel and take them back to be trained to work in the king's court. That's what Daniel chapter one is all about. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, about their transition from Israel to, to being um, advisors in the king's court. And the end of Daniel chapter one says that they were actually 10 times better than all his other advisors. Daniel chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. It's an awful and disturbing dream. He doesn't understand it, but he um, has suspicions that his dream interpreters really only tell him general things. They're not actually telling him anything of importance. And you remember that in the Babylonian system of gods, they believe that their gods spoke to them through dreams. So if Nebuchadnezzar is cut off from people who can actually tell him about these dreams, then he's in trouble as a ruler and as a king. And so he plays essentially a test with them. He says, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. I want you to tell me the dream first, and then I want you to interpret it for me. Well, all of his sorcerers and magicians and all of his occultic leaders. They, they say, this is impossible. Nobody can do this. So Nebuchadnezzar has all of his wise men um, executed or to be executed. So the execution squad comes to Daniel, knock on Daniel's door. We're here. Daniel doesn't know any of what's happened. So he gets the lowdown on all of it. He goes and appears before the king. He says, what's going on? Give me some time. King Nebuchadnezzar grants him some time. He gathers up Hananiah Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they begin to pray. They pray, God reveals the dream, its interpretation. Daniel goes back to the king, says, this is your dream. This is its interpretation. It was about a big golden statue. You remember the statue had a head of gold, which symbolized the Babylonian empire, had shoulders and a chest of silver. That was the Medo-Persian empire, which was gonna replace the Babylonian empire. It had a, a bronze stomach and uh, uh, his upper legs. That was the Grecian empire, Alexander the Great. Legs of iron, that's the Roman empire. And then uh, feet of clay mixed with iron. That was all of the governments that would come in the aftermath of the Roman empire. This is the dream. And and there's a stone that comes and pulverizes the statue, crushes it so much that it just turns into dust in the wind. This is the kingdom of God. This is how Daniel interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar appreciates it. Now, historians, they debate how much time has passed between the end of Daniel chapter 2 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 3. Some say it's pretty immediate. It's just kind of the next chapter of the story. Uh, another set of consensus is that 16 years has passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Now, we won't know for sure, and there's some very specific reasons why they come up with the number 16, although we're just trusting them today. It could just be some intern, some historian back room going, you know what sounds good? 16 sounds good. Let's just go with that. But let's just trust them today. Not that it matters, but let's just pretend 16 years has passed between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3. What is in King Nebuchadnezzar's mind? Well, I got this dream 16 years ago about how my kingdom was going to be overtaken by this other kingdom, my kingdom of gold. 
These shoulders and chest of silver were going to come and replace me. And then after that, some bronze. And after that, some iron. And after that, some iron and clay. But 16 years later, here I am standing. Nothing can stop me. Nothing can thwart me. And to celebrate my staying power, I'm going to build a statue. And what's the statue made of? The statue's made, coated in gold, just like the head in the dream. There is no silver in my kingdom. There is no bronze in my kingdom. I am the head of gold. I am the chest and arms of gold. I am the stomach and upper thighs of gold. I am the legs of gold and I am the feet of gold. This is what's in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. I will be here forever. The Babylonian empire will stand. Now he probably dedicated this statue to some God in the Babylonian system. As I mentioned in week number one, Marduk was his favorite God. He named his son after this God. He was named after the, essentially the vice presidents of God. So we, we don't know what deity was represented or supposedly represented in this statue. But really at the end of the day, this statue is about King Nebuchadnezzar. And everyone bows except for the three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Observation number two. The Israelite men refused to worship the idol. The Israelite men refused to worship the idol. Verse eight. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of a blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the same uh, golden statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. So the king arranges the worship service. He arranges the stakes. If you don't bow to the golden statue, You're burned in the fiery furnace. Everyone bows except for these three. So you can imagine the picture. Um, Everyone bowing down and there the three of them are. We don't know if that is exactly the way that it looked. But somehow, some of their peers, 
some of the other royal advisors, some of the other important people, they knew that these three did not bow down to the golden statue and they were already jealous. Chapter one, those three plus Daniel are promoted. Chapter two, those three plus Daniel are promoted. So they're jealous. They're looking for any opportunity to undermine the ascension of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they go to the king. King, you're never gonna believe this. Three Jews whom you appointed. They, they didn't worship your golden statue. And they, there's three offenses, according to these people. They ignored your commands. They do not serve the king's gods. They refused to bow to the king's statue of gold. And so he gives them grace. He gives them grace. He, he says, listen, I'm gonna give you another opportunity. Maybe you got confused. Maybe the herald didn't say the words right. I'm gonna give you another chance. So he launches into the music's gonna start and all of these instruments that most of us have never heard of and everybody's gonna bow down to the deal. And they, say, they stop him. They're like, we don't need a second chance. We don't need a second chance. We will not bow down to the golden statue. I wonder if they were tempted to though, just a little bit. Because I think I would have been tempted. I mean, why would they have been tempted? Well, they would have said what we would have said, which is, I'll just go through the motions. I don't really mean it. It's not like I really believe that this God is here, but, but maybe I just go through the motions, kind of stay under the radar, be able to do a lot of good from the position that I'm in. Just, just go through the motions. It's not a big deal. You don't mean it in your heart. If you don't mean it in your heart, who cares? Who cares? A lot of people live that way. Well, I... I believe in Jesus in my heart. I believe it's important in my heart. Now it's disconnected from the way that my body works and moves and the things that I do, but it's in my heart. So maybe they could have said the same thing. Listen, my heart is for God, the one true God. I mean, what's it matter if for 30 seconds I bow down to this golden statue? In fact, I'll bow down, but I'll pray to the one. Who knows? I wonder if they were tempted. They would have been tempted if they were me. Think about the security. They're slaves, I mean, they look powerful because they've been promoted a couple of times, but they're slaves. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were conquered people. They couldn't just say to King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I just want to slide my resignation letter across the table. I'd actually like to go back to, like to, go back to my homeland. Nebuchadnezzar was in their homeland. They were slaves. And if you are a slave and you're thinking, you know, I've actually been promoted a couple of times, and for the life of a slave, this is actually a pretty good life. I'm in charge of a few things. For security's sake, oh, I'll just go through the motions of bowing down. For future security, maybe they were tempted. You know, the kings had favor on them a few times already. Maybe there might be some future favor in it for them if they just go through the motions. Security with other people. I mean, think about the public pressure they had to resist. I mean, look at the way that it describes all the people that are there, people from every language, every nation, all these people that the Babylonians had conquered, assembled in this place, a large, large portion of them, everyone bowing down, not just randomly, not just coming and giving honor to the statue and then you go and then somebody else comes. No, all at the same time, at the right moment, think about the public pressure. Think about you there. Think about how wobbly your knees would have been as everyone else's knees started to bend and it became more and more obvious that you were distinct. I mean, think about all the things that I do for security with other people. I wish I could say that I would have stood there with them. 
I don't know that I can look you in the face and say that with 100% confidence. But they did, they, they just stood there as everyone else bowed down. Observation number three, the Israelite men were sentenced to death Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. The Israelite men were sentenced to death. The king flies into a rage. Why is he so angry? He's so angry because this statue, yeah, it's dedicated to some random Babylonian deity, but this statue is about him. They are not giving him the proper respect. So what does he do? He gives this order that the furnace would be turned up seven times hotter. If you're wondering, why is there a furnace out in the middle of the plains there of Dura? Well, it's because this is the furnace that they used to build the statue. This is the furnace that they used uh, to uh, make the bricks. This is the furnace that they used to melt the gold, to cover the bricks the statue was made of. So it serves a dual purpose. It was used for construction, but it was also a threat of punishment for all of those worshipers. And he's so angry that he has it turned up seven times hotter. They put seven times more wood in there. There's seven times more flames coming out the top of this giant furnace. And they bound up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his strongest shoulders carry them, force them towards the furnace. And the furnace is so hot that these soldiers die trying to push them in. King Nebuchadnezzar is angry. And he stands there to watch them die. But observation number four, and this is where we'll finish. God rescues the three men. God rescues the three men. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. And he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, your servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. I went and ate at a restaurant two weeks ago. My clothes still smell like the smoke from that restaurant. But not on these guys. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar's in a rage, furnace seven times hotter, stands there to watch them die. Now think about that. This is a king. He was far off. He couldn't observe everything that was happening because these other uh, satraps and prefects and rulers, they had to come and tell on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's disconnected from the whole thing somehow. And yet he, the king, comes over and stands there to watch them die. Except they won't die. The soldiers who threw him in, they died. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't die. Their clothes are still on. They're not tied up anymore. And not only that, they, he sees a fourth person. Now, historically, Christians have believed this fourth person to be Jesus, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus called a Christophany. And, and Jesus is there with them. Now, I've wondered, I believe that's true. And the reason I believe that's true is the way that Nebuchadnezzar describes the fourth he sees, it's like a son of the gods. There's some royalty attached to it. I've been thinking, why would Jesus come to stand there with them? He didn't need to do that. If in his heart was to rescue, he could have rescued from the right hand of the throne in heaven. He didn't have to come. He didn't have to make an appearance. Why would he make an appearance there? Well, think about the juxtaposition. King Nebuchadnezzar has set up this statue and demanded that all the people worship the statue. But that statue's not gonna respond. That statue's not gonna talk back. That statue's not gonna bend down to affirm or comfort. It's just a statue and it's just gonna stand there. This is the God that Nebuchadnezzar had set up for worship. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't do it. And now their God is bending down. Their God is standing next to them. Their God does come to comfort. Their God does respond. I read a story this week about a young man who was talking about his dad and loved his dad. His dad was his hero. He just looked up to him. His dad was a real workaholic work all day, then he would come home, have a brief moment of dinner, then he would go into his office to work more, shut the door, really shut the door to his office. And the young man was saying as a, a little boy, he would sit outside his dad's office door there at the home and he would write him little notes and then he would slip the notes underneath the door. This is just what he'd do. He'd do it day after day. Whenever his dad was in there with the door shut, he'd write a note to his dad, slip it under there, slip it under there. And he said he would always wait for his dad to write a note on his side of the door and slip it back under to the little boy. But his dad never did. I think a lot of us, when we think about God, we think of God more like the statue than the one who stands next to us in the fire. We feel consistently like that's our job. Our job is to stand on one side of the door and write a bunch of notes. This is what I need. Can you do this? This is my need. Can you do this? Feeling the heat. Can you do this? Feeling the, the pain on this. Can you do this? This is a big request. Big somebody I care about. Here it is. Can you do this? And we wait there. We wait there. We wait there for a note to come back on the other side of the door. 
But the gospel is not that God just slips you a note on the other side of the door. The gospel is God saw you on the other side of the door before you saw God on his side of the door and he came to your side. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is saying, uh, you know, God is not content as our father and as our Lord to just be on one side and have us on the other side. God came over on our side in the flesh, born in Bethlehem, son of God, laid his life down on the cross, resurrected from the dead, uh, uh, appeared to many witnesses, ascended up into heaven, and one day will return. Where is he going to return? He's going to return to our side of the door. And you're like, well, yeah, but I don't see God. I don't see him on my side of the door. I feel like I'm in the fire right now and I don't see him anywhere. Well, did you notice? Nebuchadnezzar was the only one who saw the fourth. Now, we don't know if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw him in there. I wouldn't make that argument. Maybe they did or maybe they didn't. But from the authority of the word of God, Nebuchadnezzar is the only one who saw Jesus in that fire. So maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are over there and they're looking and they're like, we're not dying. This is pretty cool. But they don't see Jesus there standing next to to them. That's probably your situation. You're like, I don't know if God's on my side of the door. Well, it doesn't matter whether you see him or not. He is. I mean, he promised that in Psalm 34, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. When you stand in the fire, he stands right next to you. Whether you see him or not. You think, yeah, but maybe he comes and only stands next to us and reveals himself to us in that way when he's going to rescue us, when he's going to change the circumstance. You know, he pulled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back from death. You remember in the book of Acts, it tells a story of the expansion of the good news, starting with those original disciples. One of the second wave people was this young man named Stephen. And Stephen, Stephen was a fireball. Stephen would be that guy that you see at church and you're like, I like that dude, but I'm afraid he might like yell at me for not being good enough, you know, and stuff. So I'm gonna come on this side of the room. Man, he was a fireball and he was lit up and he loved to tell people about Jesus. He would preach just whoever was listening, just loved Jesus so much. But he told the right thing to the wrong group of people and they started picking up rocks to stone him and kill him. And right before the fatal blow, he says in the book of Acts, as he's looking up into the heavens, he said, I see the son of man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Jesus making an appearance there. He didn't have to do that. People die all the time. He didn't have to open it up, but he appeared there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to pull them out of the fire. And he appeared to Stephen as he walked him right through it. So you say, God is not here on my side of the door. He is there. He just maybe has not given you eyes to see it at the moment. And this is the difference between our God and an idol and a statue made of gold. So what do we do? Is idolatry a pervasive problem in my life? Probably I offer up things to other people and other things that... I should only offer to God, it is. So what do I do about it? What's the great thing? There's not five steps to walk away from idolatry. You just have to be faithful. Be faithful. Say that with me today. Be faithful. It's just real simple. When everyone else bows, you be faithful. When everyone else offers worship, you be faithful. 
when your moment comes, you be faithful. Just be faithful. I've been thinking a lot about uh, faithfulness uh, the last 48 hours. I got a phone call. I'm not gonna cry, by the way. This is practice, actually. Uh, you'll notice, uh, you'll know in just a second why it's practice, but uh, if I cry, you're gonna give me grace. That's what's gonna happen here today because I'm the pastor. You're gonna do what I say. Uh, Thursday, I was driving to lunch and I got a phone call from some of my family in Missouri. It said my grandfather had had a stroke and it, it didn't look good and it was non-responsive. And so, uh, so I got in the car that afternoon and drove up to Missouri and you know, just thinking about the, this man because I don't know whether I would have bowed down why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood. But I know my grandfather would have stood there right next to him. And I know when Shadrach started to have his faith be a little wobbly, he would have looked at my grandpa and been like, no, he's standing over there. I better uh, stand too. It's too late now. Uh, you know, just a faithful, faithful guy, man, just faithful. Faithfully loved the word of God like crazy, just loved the word. And I've told you this story before, but I, I want to tell you it again. When I was a kid, I would spend the night at their house all the time. You know, now looking back, I think my mom had a real problem with me that didn't uh, <laughs> spend the night at their house all the time. And, uh, you know, kids wake up early in the morning. That's what kids do. Uh, my grandma, she was uh, she's a cool lady. She didn't mind sleeping in. And whenever Jesus woke her up, that's when she got up. Jesus usually woke her up about 8.30 or 9. And uh, uh, so I would wake up early in the morning. I could never beat my grandfather up, though. And Almost every time, I believe, I can say this before the Lord, almost every time I would tiptoe through their living room, I would tiptoe through their little dining room, of course, that they never use, and stand at the edge of the kitchen and peek around the corner because at the kitchen table, every time, whether it was a Saturday morning or a Wednesday morning or a Thursday morning, it didn't matter. Every time there would be my grandfather with his Bible open and a notebook, studying, reading, you think, well, he must have been a pastor. You stand in a great legacy of pastors. No, my grandfather was a manager, a low-level manager at a plant in uh, my hometown, just an ordinary guy with an ordinary job who loved the word of God. He was a Sunday school teacher, would be like in our church culture, a community group leader. You know, most of us, if we're leading a community group, we're preparing on the way to community group, but not my grandfather. He was there studying the scripture every morning. You know, it's cool. They he didn't show up for breakfast on Thursday morning with his church buddies. And uh, um, uh, so they went to his house, you know, because they got worried and, and uh, they found him unconscious, essentially. And, and right now we took him off all of his stuff and, you know, he's got one foot and I almost made it. Man, I was close there. Um, he's got one foot in heaven and one foot on earth right now. But when they found him on his kitchen table and someone took a picture, there was his Bible and all his stuff. Just faithfully, faithfully love the word of God. Um, faithful to love the church. Church. He, we had a small church, and then that small church got big and got a little bit small again. He was just an anchor for it, you know. In fact, he has the keys to the church uh, because he was the guy who for a long time mowed the yard at the church. When there was a Bible study, women's Bible study, he'd be the guy who would drive up there to unlock the doors and he would go and sit out in the parking lot while the women did their Bible study. And when they were all gone, he'd lock the doors again. And, and uh, you know, when uh, church was happening on Sunday morning, he was the first one there to unlock the doors. And lots of people had keys, but, you know, they were pastors. And he was just a regular guy who loved the church so much and was so trustworthy that they gave him a set of keys Men, can, can you be trusted with the keys of the church? Not these keys. We rent a school. They're not going to give us any set here. But 
Man, theoretically, men, are you gonna be men that can be trusted with a set of keys? Because when somebody needs to study the word, you'll leave whatever you're doing to just unlock the doors. Will they give you a set of keys because you're the lead deacon? Or will they give you a set of keys because the yard needs to be mowed and the lawnmower's inside and somebody's got to unlock the door to get the lawnmower and you're not the only guy, the guy guy with the keys, but you're the guy behind the wheel there. Are you going to be that kind of man? We got a lot of young men. Are you going to coast on the hard work of someone else who carries the keys? I know you. I know you want to be that kind of man. I know you want to be that kind of man for your family. I know you want to be that kind of man for the church. Well, what's it going to take? It's just going to take some resolve and some commitment to say, I am going to be that kind of man. I am going to be trustworthy. The church of Jesus Christ, whether it's Bayou City or some other church in some other city, wherever God can take me, they can count on me. They can count on me. He was faithful in that real simple way. Carried the keys. He was faithful because he loved Jesus. Gosh, this guy loved Jesus. I, I, I told Amanda on my way up there, you know, I've never met somebody who just looks so forward to going to heaven even when he was in good health. I meet a lot of people who look forward to going to heaven when they're in so much pain here. But I've rarely met somebody who just looked forward to heaven when their life on earth was really good. But he did. You know, uh, when I was driving up there, I was, you know, left here at three and it, it took me uh, fewer hours than it probably should have uh, to get there, but a lot of hours. And so the waiting room or the visiting hours of the uh, neurological unit that he is in uh, passed and the hospital and his unit was essentially shut down. But that's the like one time in life when you're thankful to be a pastor, you know, because hospitals open up doors for pastors that they don't open up for anybody else. And so uh, I showed up at about midnight there at the hospital. Hospitals are essentially a ghost town. And uh, I uh, picked up the little phone to his unit. All the doors were shut. And I said, uh, my name is Curtis Jones. I'm here to see Charles Dixon. I'm a pastor and here the doors open. You know, I left out that I was his grandson. I don't know if, I'm, I don't know if that was unethical, but probably it was. Uh, but, uh, and so I, I went in and this is, of course there's nobody there, just the nurses and, and went into the room and, you know, there he was and started praying. It's been a good long time with him, just me and him. And he's not responsive. You know, you can startle him and wake him up and he'll kind of open up one eye, but he's, he's not home. Like I said, he's probably enjoying the Sunday morning with the Lord. Uh, his body's just not quite caught up to him yet. But, uh, you know, I showed up at that hospital filled with faith, you know, cause we have this amazing God. We have this God who he's the one who told the sun to rise up over the Atlantic ocean today. And he's going to be the one that sets it on the other side of the Pacific ocean and tells it to come on around for uh, the other hemisphere. You know, we have this God who makes the trees grow and the grass bloom and all that stuff. This God can do anything that we serve. He's no statue. He can do what any, anything you want. So I'm spending, uh, you know, nine and a half hours pumping myself up, trying to get as much faith as I can muster up so that when I walk into that room, I can pray and he'd come back to me. And then I got there and I'm thinking this guy has loved Jesus all his life and he's got one foot in the throne room and he's got one foot here. I didn't have the heart to do it. I didn't have the heart. I didn't want to steal from him the only thing that I know he's wanted. And he's faithful. 
And I know he would have stood there next to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what's the answer? I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. So just be faithful. It's not complicated. God says he's given you everything that you need. You can do it. Let's pray. give us the resolve that we need. Give us a heart to love you and a heart to stand with you. When there's question marks over our present, when there's question marks over our future, keep our knees locked and our eyes on you. God, make us a church where it seems like everybody's got a set of keys. Make us a church where everybody's Bible is open on their kitchen table. Make us a kind of church where Sunday mornings are just not a check on the box. It's just a taste of what we are desperate for. The moment we get to lock eyes with you for the very first time. Until then, we resist the monuments and we resist the music. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? If this is your first time at Bayou City, we finish our services with a time of prayer and ministry. And so those guys are gonna come and take their places here at the front. We finish our services with prayer every week because uh, we wanna be faithful to Jesus. And Jesus said, God's house is a house of prayer. And so you can see these guys coming up here ready to pray for you. And I wanna invite you to pray about a couple of things. If you're a man and it's Father's Day, you may not have kids yet, but that may be in your future. And you just say, as a man, I wanna be faithful. I'm leaving some obedience on the table. There's some things that I should be doing that I am not currently doing and I don't have a good reason for it. And I want that to change right now. I want that to be marker in my life today, Father's Day, 2016. I can do better and I will do better, not by my own strength, but by the strength that God has given me. Men, you come and pray. There's some other men who are going to, our elders are going to be up here as well. Got some men here, lots of men. You can come and grab another man be prayed for. If today you or someone you love is sick, they're in the hospital, they're struggling, and because of some kind of illness, you feel like you are standing in the middle middle of a fiery furnace. You come and pray. You know, it wasn't my grandpa's moment, I don't think, to be prayed for with faith and to see healing. God can still do that. I believe that he can. I have no doubts that he can. I'm just not sure that's what my grandfather would want. But maybe the person you're praying for, it's not their time. Their number of days has not reached the end, according to the scripture. You come and pray for them. You come and pray God would do a miracle in their life. You come and pray God will do a miracle in your life. He can do that. He stands with us in the fire. It's pretty cool. And today, if you have somebody that uh, is just on your heart, you love them, you care about them, and they're on your heart today, you come and pray for them by name. Anything else God's stirring in you, of course, you come and pray. So God, we put this time of prayer in your hands. 
we know probably this is the most important thing that we'll do today, where we can pray directly to you. We thank you for the extra measure of authority that you've given in prayer when we pray with other people. So we follow your directions now. We pray you would answer these prayers for Jesus' name in our lives and in this world.